Welcome to the Being the Change podcast. I'm Kristen Vanderveer here with Isabel Kiyosayan. We are the founders of Meditation Without Borders, and today we are so excited and feel incredibly honored to have uh, the radiant <laughs> Tracy Stanley with us today. Um, if you haven't heard of her yet, you you will. Well, you'll, <laughs> you'll hear about her on this podcast, obviously, but <laughs> you'll hear about her elsewhere because she has um, this year come out with a book called Radiant Rest. Um, and Tracy Stanley, she um, she knows so much knowledge and about different practices, but the practice her book is about is Yoga Nidra. And we would uh, love to welcome her here. Thank you so much, Tracy, for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much, both of you, for inviting me, and I'm happy to be with you today. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much in this book. We could talk for hours. Um, so we'll try. I, I think we'll hit a lot of things today, but we'll try and um, keep it uh, to let's let's start by talking about Yoga Nidra in mm. general and your background a little bit. So mm. um, I have some students who um, who actually follow your practices and I have some students who have no idea what yoga nidra is. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, good. So, so yoga nidra is a practice of repose. The definition and translation um, has widely um, circulated around yoga of sleep, and so I think that's how most of us know it at the yoga of sleep. And yet the word nidra has another meaning. So nidra comes from two words, ni meaning void and drew meaning to draw forth from. And also we, we think about yoga nidra and most of the time we think about it as a technique, as something to do. Like we go, <laughs> we're going to go do yoga, right? <laughs> but it's such a full practice because yoga nidra is also a state of consciousness very similar to samadhi, said to be peace beyond words. And it is also referring to a goddess that is talked about in the Devi Mahatma. So when we think about Yoga Nidra, the technique, we think about this practice where we lie down in a comfortable, supported posture, whether that is Shavasana or sideline or some other pose that is most comfortable to us and that we are guided through systematically to deeply relax the parts of the body. And while we are relaxing these parts of the body, there is a part of us that is asked to remain conscious, awake and aware while this is all happening. And the body begins to deeply relax, moving into parasympathetic nervous system. Um, and at some point we may lose this identification with the physical body, the body starts to feel as though it's dissolving and we become more aware of our energy and our thoughts and maybe intuitive wisdom starts to drop in. And it resembles from the outside, it resembles sleep. And sometimes if you have an EEG hooked up to your head, the electrodes hooked up to your head, it may even show that the brain waves are suggesting that you are in a deep sleep where you shouldn't be conscious or aware of what's happening in your surroundings. But in fact, when we practice yoga nidra, 
we are weaving awareness through all of the states of consciousness, including those transitions between the states. And it is really the peace and the bliss that feels to me, at least like it emerges from those transitions and from those spaces. So whether that is the hypnagogic state, that space between waking and sleeping, or the hypnopompic state, which is that state between being asleep and awake, those are the states of transition that we normally miss in our day-to-day life, right? It's like you set the alarm clock when you go to sleep. There's no, there's no awareness of the liminal space. You're jolted out of your sleep and then you're like feet hit the floor. And so yoga nidra is really this practice that allows us to return back to that which is unseen, to that which is normally veiled in the waking world. It actually gives us a look into who am I and what am I if I am not name and if I am not form. And so it's a really beautiful practice. It's very practical as well because people find it to be a great asset for them if uh, they deal with insomnia or exhaustion. And at the same time that it is this beautiful technique, it is a state of consciousness that I said earlier is, is close to peace beyond words or samadhi, which also means that it's a full system of yoga, right? It doesn't require you to do any other asana or posture other than being completely supported by the earth unconditionally. And part of our journey into being supported is learning to trust that we deserve to be supported and that we're worthy of being supported. And at the same time, if we think about this aspect of the divine feminine that is the goddess Yoganidra, she is the one that presides over the technique that leads to the state of consciousness that is peace beyond words. So I feel like this practice has a few different portals for people to enter through which resonates with them most, whether it's just the technique, like I need to rest or I need to feel, you know, I need to kind of put some money in my rest debt account. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, I really want um, to experience as a seeker, I want to experience this uh, place that is the absolute dissolution because yoga nidra is a, a yoga of dissolution. It's a laya yoga practice. It is also, I would say, one of the queen practices of pratyahara, which is withdrawal of the senses. And the idea is that we withdraw the senses so that we can reassimilate into our true nature. So if we really want to know the truth of our own power and our own light, yoga nidra is the perfect practice um, that I think is very accessible to people. Um, And so hopefully that was a good enough definition (laughs) of what yoga nidra is, because it's more than just one thing. (laughs) That was beautiful. I, I feel like I I transcended. Yeah, I just want to hear you speak. (laughs) (laughs) Just read the the phone book, please. It's amazing. This is something that because I I heard the book on Audible, you can hear it there, and I know that you're the one who who 
reads it, and I feel like your your voice is like home. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm I've glad. been hearing you um, for a few days now, and and now that um, I'm finally listening to you again, it's just like ah, oh, what a beautiful, soothing voice. And I'm just gonna drift into Turia. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, um, when I was reading your book, I was so, um, I, I, I couldn't help but notice there's so many parallels between your, you know, yoga nidra and, um, Vedic meditation, the, the practice, I mean, they, all the, it comes from the same source really. And they're both forms of yoga. Um, but I, the, the main parallel that I, um, kept coming back to is this idea of, of rest, of it all coming back to rest and in a society that has not honored rest in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I find really interesting is that you're in your former life, you were a producer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. My, my official title was producer. That is correct. <laughs> so my, um, I used to be in advertising, so I know, you know, producers are the ultimate doers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you went from the field of, of, of extreme action um, to, to the other extreme of non-action, but just that the, um, this idea of rest is, you know, as a society, we have so much resistance to it and, um, you address this in the book, but, um, yeah, but we wear some... busyness like a badge of rank, right? <laughs> that is true. That is absolutely true. Um, <laughs> And I just, I, I, I don't know. I just wanted to talk a bit about your, um, about this, this societal resistance to rest and what you found in your own experience from, um, cause I'm sure there's students who are facing this. Yeah. I mean, this is a big thing. You know, um, I feel very fortunate that when I began my career in film, that I was also just beginning my journey with yoga. And so it was a parallel journey of kind of being in uh, practicing yoga for about five or six years before I was introduced to the practice of yoga nidra. And that being kind of coinciding right when I had my first hit film. Mm -hmm. And so my career was taking off, but at the same time I had this practice. And so I think that in a lot of ways, the practice of yoga nidra saved me from really being in that space of I need to do to prove my worth Mm -hmm. or I need Mm -hmm. to, because, you know, prior to that, prior to being introduced to yoga nidra, I was one of those people who hadn't taken a vacation for like five or six years because (laughs) of all the fears that happen, right? Mm -hmm. Like what's going to happen if I take a vacation, who's going to try to get my job or, you know, the office will fall apart without me, <laughs> you know, all, all of the thing, all of the ego based things that, that we tell ourselves, right, to keep us in the doing. Um, and what I was able to realize pretty quickly was that there was a lot of power in the specific practice of yoga nidra, right? Mm-hmm. I was not correlating necessarily yoga nidra with rest. I was correlating it as, okay, this is a practice. And this practice makes me feel like I've slept for, you know, three hours. And it also 
allows me to think more efficiently and to actually really be more productive and more calm in the midst of turmoil than I ever would have been had I not been practicing yoga nidra consistently. So, you know, I pretty early on began to add yoga nidra in to my yoga classes because I was producing films and I owned a yoga studio where I would teach on the weekends um, or when I was had time to teach. Actually, Light, that's how I met Light is because he oh. I hired him as a yoga teacher. <laughs> <laughs> like 20 back something how day. yeah, back in the day. <laughs> And back when so he was modeling too. <laughs> that you know, I don't he didn't he didn't put that on his resume, so I'm not sure <laughs> if he was modeling, but he was an he was a really amazing um asana teacher. So it was a little bit before his meditation journey. But having said that, um you know, it was something that I felt was really valuable, but I also realized that there was this within yoga, at least there was this desire to almost work yourself to exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And that if you didn't do all the hardest poses, and if you weren't on your right leg for, (laughs) you know, 20 minutes, (laughs) you know, doing various (laughs) things on the right side, uh, somehow your practice wasn't worthy. Mm -hmm. You know, that's definitely the message that I received in the very Mm -hmm. beginning of of practicing yoga. So when I was introduced to, um, to yoga nidra, it was a complete shift. It was like, well, wait a second, we're just going to lay down and we're not going to do any poses whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to do any, like, what did we do to deserve that to be able to lay down? How do I compete? (laughs) Exactly. How do I show that I can do a handstand in the middle of the room or whatever it is? Who will see my outfit if their eyes are closed? (laughs) Right. And so that was, that was, that was a shift. That was a huge shift. And, you know, I, from that, practice, I was introduced to one of my first teachers, who's a teacher of Tantra and Srividya. And that completely shifted my awareness of yoga kind of away from the more um, asana based, Mm -hmm. without any kind of yogic philosophy or wisdom kind of underpinning it. Right. And so to answer your question, um, I really feel like People have to just be offered an opportunity to do the practice because we can talk about it all we want, right? And we should, we should be talking about it. But I feel like until you have really deeply rested and practiced something like a yoga nidra practice or deep relaxation practice, you almost don't realize how exhausted you are. (laughs) Because we're just so used to running. We're used to being in the fight or flight. We're used to all of the things between advertising and social media and all of the things that push our awareness to the external that make us feel and really believe that everything that we want and need is outside of us and that the way we're going to get it is by continuing to just run, run, run ourselves ragged. And I feel that once we can become still, and sometimes we just need that, that friend or that teacher or that 
you know, even it could be an Instagram post that just reminds you about rest. It reminds you about these deeper practices, these quiet practices like yin yoga or restorative yoga, yoga nidra, meditation. Um, and that these are, these are practices that can allow you to, you know, just rejuvenate yourself. So, you know, I know that it seems counterintuitive that to rest means I could be more productive or that I could be more clear, but that is what my, that is what I have found. That is what the people that I work with have found, even despite their resistance. And I think it's, it's one of those things where when we're working um, with yoga nidra students and teacher trainers is the first thing is to identify the resistance to it because the resistance can be something as simple as, well, I never saw my parents take a nap Mm -hmm. or something more like trauma or something more like racism, where it's just doesn't feel safe to be able to lay down and close your eyes um, if you're in a certain body. I, I think about so many times I hear from people, you know, that they don't like meditation, they don't like restorative practices, that they can't do them. And as you were talking, I was just thinking about how what they don't like is that feeling of not feeling safe, and mm-hmm. that fear of rest that comes up. And so that's what they're identifying with the discomfort as opposed to the practice. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it really is. It's why I have self-inquiry and questions and journal prompts in the book, because it's easy for me to say, lay down, relax, let go. Right. But that is not the experience for a majority of people. You know, even if you don't identify with having um, any kind of trauma, most of the time there is something running in our thought constructs Mm -hmm. that tell us it is not safe to rest. So so the journaling helps um, to process that, those fears. Yeah. It, it helps to identify what they are. Mm-hmm. I think if you want to process them, it, it to me feels like you, you having the help of a psychotherapist or someone who's trained in trauma yeah. is good, but to know that it exists so that you yeah. can identify like, oh, this, this is part of the reason why it's hard for me to, to relax. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's really important for us to understand. And something that um, that I found to be very beautiful is how once we we get these techniques and we practice them through rest, we realize that we we've been asleep. <laughs> this is <laughs> when we actually wake up to the truth um, within us, which I find fascinating. It sounds ironic, but it's so true. Yeah, well that that is the that's the thing. It's it's so it's a it's nuanced because yoga nidra is the practice of waking up to your true self, right? That that practice of dissolution is you are d- dissolving everything that is not you and returning back to your true nature. And at the same time, we may even have a fear of waking up to our true power. Right. And so that's another form of resistance. Like, who would I be if I was really powerful? (laughs) 
That gave me chills. Me too. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, sometimes I am scared. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the, the, and so then you like kind of write down and think about what are the, what are the dangers of me being in my true power in my, just in speaking my, my truth. And sometimes that means that you might even know that there are people around you who will not like it mm-hmm. if you are in your power because they're being served by you not being in your power. So there's all kinds of things that we have to explore. And I think that that's why this practice is so um, deeply healing and transformative is because it's beyond a practice of just lying down and having someone guide you into relaxing your toes and your heels and your calves. It, It really goes deep, deep, deep into the subtle layers of our spiritual and energetic anatomy into our thoughts and really it's a path for us to be free. In your book, you talked about power in such an interesting way and how um, when we are distracted and, and that external, you know, constantly pushing our senses to the external, that is a process of giving away our power. And I'd never heard it described that way, but it was incredible. Thank you for that. I mean, it's like go to any airport or to any restaurant and you see people on their phone. That one of the biggest ways in which we give our attention, because we know our attention and our energy moves mm-hmm. through our senses, is through the eyes. Yeah. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you're giving it to your phone. <laughs> and you get you're giving it to your, your phone and, and it could be used in so many other beautiful ways, especially because when you sit and look at your phone for an hour, you feel drained. Mm -hmm. You don't feel more alive. You don't feel more vibrant. (laughs) Right. I mean, I know this from experience. So, you know, if we were getting some kind of like energy exchange from the phone, that would be different, but that's not what's happening. (laughs) I just had this vision of our phones one day because they're receiving all our power, taking over the world as like oh. <laughs> androids or something. <laughs> it's it's scary. That may actually happen in some way. Um, yeah, it's like the movie How. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I was I was curious as well about. Um, you know, it, it came up for me when you're talking about the the difference between the asana practice. Um, and the restorative practices, the asana practices had almost like this masculine edge, you know, this sort of harder edge to them, whereas the feminine has that, um, you know, is, is that allowing. And um, I wanted to mention one of the things that I read in your book that I loved was um, when you talk about the masculine and fe- feminine in terms of the discipline versus the devotion to sticking to your practice. Uh, I would love for you to explore that because I think so many of my students are, they, they fall off their practices and they think that they have to discipline their way there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- it's an interesting um, idea, this idea of discipline, <laughs> especially within a lineage. Yeah. Right. Because in general, we're given a practice and we're told 
do this practice 150,000 repetitions mm -hmm. within three months, which means that you better do it. <laughs> <laughs> Time's ticking. Because if you don't, if you don't do it and you're supposed to be finished, that means you're going to be like up all night for like weeks at a time because you slacked off. <laughs> right? <laughs> And, and so while I, I do believe that that type of discipline allows you to be able to uh, activate so many things within yourself, right? Mm -hmm. I do, what I do know is that um, I think it was maybe at least I'd been teaching for many, many years before I had anyone who was studying with me complete a practice that was a very long practice. Mm -hmm. And what I always noticed was this, I, this shame, mm -hmm. like a shame that, oh, I didn't finish it or I missed a day or, you know, and the effect of the shame would have it would be different things like, oh, just stop coming to class, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. And it and I always thought, well, what? This is so interesting that we feel so much shame yeah. for not achieving. And to me, I was like, this doesn't make any sense because this, if we go back to the Yoga Sutras, it says that we are supposed to be in reverence with our practice. We're, su we're supposed to be devoted to our practice. And so I felt like a reframe was something that was really needed for how I was teaching because I didn't want people to feel shame because life gets in the way of being able to do a consistent practice every day for a specific amount of time. You know, these practices... Um, many times were given to people who were not householders, right? They, they were people who were probably men and probably didn't have a lot of duties because they were spiritual people on a spiritual journey and that was what they were doing. That was their dharma. And so I feel like having devotion, first of all, needs to be defined by each person, for themselves. What does devotion mean? You know, we can, we can look back at the etymology of the word and, and the etymology from the 1200s comes from the word awe and the word reverence. And so thinking about what is it that allows me to feel awe? How do I feel inspired by my own practice? And how can I begin to weave that into my daily life and allow that to be part of my practice? as opposed to having the hard edge of, I have to do it every mm -hmm. single day. Um, and if I don't do it, there's something wrong with me mm -hmm. because then I'm comparing and I'm competing with the other people around me or myself or my past self, right. <laughs> of what, you know, mm -hmm. what have I accomplished? Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I feel like, um, for those of us who are householders, it really just makes sense to be able to be devoted. And when you're devoted and you're in your heart, that longing is calling you back to your mat every day. 
It's not the fear of the whip or the fear of being shamed or the fear of failing that brings you there. It's the longing for freedom. It's the longing for connection with your Ishta Devata. It's the, it's all of those things that bring you back to your mat. It's love that brings you back to your mat. I want to take notes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, there's, there's a teaching that I, sh- I feel like I should share because it's really beautiful. And my, my friend Chanti always reminds me of this. Um, and it's a teaching from Rolf Sovic, who's a teacher at the Himalayan Institute in um, both Buffalo and New York. And he says that if you can't get to your mat, first of all, leave your mat and your cushion sitting and set up all the time that you can just touch the mat and touch or touch the cushion and just say, I really want to be here, but I can't be here now. And I'll be here tomorrow and just offer your love and offer your blessing for knowing that you have a longing to be there, but time constraints in life are not allowing it for, for the day. And that's your practice. I, I haven't heard many people talk about this um, particular aspect of the practice, you know, how to, the real way to um, be consistent and be consistent in a loving way with yourself. Um, you know, I love how you talk about it. It's almost like you, the practice is not something separate. It's like the practice is you so that you're devoted to your inner self. And so there's no, there's nothing to, um, to disappoint. You know, it's, there's nothing separate that you're, um, that you are failing in any way. Exactly. When your life is a ritual, it's a constant flow. You're not looking at that one hour that you were supposed to be practicing or doing whatever it is that has been prescribed. Your book has the householder's flow, which talks about that, um, which I also found a beautiful way of describing how yoga is not something you just do on the mat. It's something that's a practice for, it's, a, it's, it's your life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your life is the practice. <laughs> and that's where we really see the results. It's, I always tell my students, it's not so much how you feel inside that may change, but it's how that inner experience expresses itself in your everyday life. And that's where you really begin to see everything. Exactly. And, and that's where the yoga really begins. I feel like is that the people around us who have no interest in yoga, all of a sudden start to notice that there's a change. Mm -hmm. They start to feel the, the, the calm and the peace, the clarity, and then maybe they start to ask questions, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, this goes back to this idea that, you know, you, I remember when I first started practicing yoga, I heard this idea that you shouldn't advertise yoga, mm-hmm. that you should just be yoga. Mm-hmm. And that's enough. That That is so true. As someone who is used to be in advertising, I have a real aversion to advertising <laughs> this kind of thing, because it does feel like, um, like it, it is something that you just are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember when we were, me and Kristen, we did our teacher training together 
and when they were uh, showing us how to teach and how to get students, I remember uh, Lamore, this really great teacher in Australia, she was like, it's not what you say, it's what you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly. That's why I loved um, hearing you uh, read your book because it's it's not just that your voice is so calming, but it, it's calming because of your state of consciousness. And that goes through when you read it or when you listen to it. It's just your voice <laughs> kind of puts you in that state. And that that's, that was my experience for sure. <laughs> mm, I appreciate that reflection. Thank you. Yeah, I, I almost find this a difficult interview because I keep wanting to transcend listening to you. <laughs> like, I have to ask questions. I have to stay here. <laughs> Well, we could just sit here in silence and that would be amazing we too. Could. Everyone listening, we're going to all just go. We're going to do, I'm going to go in my yoga nidra nest, which is my favorite thing. I, I bet I read about because I'm just like, oh, just the idea of a nest. It was just, I, I don't know, as um, a mom where the closest thing I had to a nest was a pile of laundry mm. <laughs> <laughs> to actually create a space. Yeah. That was comforting. It, was, it just had so much appeal to me um, mm. uh, because it's, it, that is a contrast to our practice because, you know, the, the practices you and I teach is about, you know, you can meditate anywhere on a bus, mm-hmm. on a spike, on a <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> anywhere except underwater. You don't want to do that. But, um, but the idea of actually creating a space where the space itself gives you that sense of safety and comfort um, I, f- I found really lovely, especially, you know, when you talk about people who, um, have, ex- have had experiences in their life, whether it's through trauma, racism, family issues, um, that do not feel safe resting, that you mm-hmm. can actually physically create your own safe nest. Yeah. I, I love that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It was important to include, um, because, as I said, you know, I get to see hundreds of people um, prior to the pandemic um, and then also people online now. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we talk about rest and we talk about the messages that we received and the experiences that have happened in their lives, it's necessary to be able to have alternatives for just laying in Shavasana, which mm-hmm. is a very vulnerable position. Yeah. I agree. And sometimes, something that I found very interesting is how you say this um, inner beautiful state is our birthright. And it's something that we, that we tell our students too, like you, you deserve the best. And what I found, I don't know if this has been your experience too, but a lot of people also have a resistance. They feel like they, they don't deserve the best. <laughs> and so I, I just wanted to see um, if you could comment a little on that and how people own up and, and understand and acknowledge that that is their birthright. Yeah. I mean, I think this goes back to the lies that we've been sold, that we have mm-hmm. to work or we have to do something to earn being worthy, right? We have to do something to earn happiness, to earn joy, to earn freedom. (laughs) And these things are all our birthright. And so, you know, for 
people, again, it's back to self-inquiry. It's back to the practices of vichara. It's back to, so that, that essential question of the vichara practice would be, who am I? Right? Mm -hmm. Ramana Maharshi became enlightened by just mm -hmm. continuing to ask that question over and over and over again. And for me, um, self-inquiry feels like most of us in the householder state are not really ready to ask that question, right? Because mm -hmm. then we start to answer it with, you know, many things that I, that are identifiers or that mm -hmm. are the concretization of our personality or the vasanas, right? Mm -hmm. Or the accumulation of samskaras. And so we have to ask different questions to get to the same answer. And it may take us and probably will take us much, much longer than it took Ramana Maharshi sitting in his room for a day. But it will take it can take us a long time, but that's part of life as a practice. Um, and I think the more we start to ask these questions of ourselves and the more we start to understand um, how the mind itself works, that we get to see, oh, these are some of the beliefs that actually don't even belong to me. Mm -hmm. This is a belief from, you know, my mother or a belief from my some teacher that I was in school with and I took it on as mine. And so I think it's really, you know, self-inquiry to me is just an indispensable practice. I My own practice is not complete without it. I, I, what I find interesting about that is um, it's almost as if the practice itself lets you, I think you call it two-pronged awareness, um, lets you witness these things. It's almost like if you can see like a p mother's opinion out here mm -hmm. as, as um, I can see it's not mine because I'm by, through the practice, I am able to identify with my true self and have experience with my true self. So now these, these external things feel more external. Um, That's a beautiful way of putting it. That's exactly right. We, we get to feel the vibration of who we really are and everything that is not us is also seen. But that is also a, a kind of a, um, a result of the wakefulness that we weave throughout yoga nidra practice mm -hmm. because we're staying awake and aware as we move through the journey of yoga nidra, right? When it could be mm -hmm. so easy to fall asleep. <laughs> and then when we are in the waking state, we bring that wakefulness back with us so that as Izzy was saying earlier, we wake up, we wake up to the world. Most of us are, are asleep. I mean, have, has anybody ever, I know I have in the past, uh, you're driving to someplace that you know you've been dr you've driven to a million times, and somehow you find yourself there, and you're like, "Whoa, I barely remember. How the heck did I get here? I barely remember." I mean, and <laughs> right? Has that happened to you? Yes. So yeah, it's times. like yeah, it's like oh, and so we zone out, and I think yeah. that a lot of times we go through life like that. We're not awake to what's happening. That's the, the biggest, uh, best example that I can give to being asleep. And, and if you think about 
that driving in that state where you don't remember how you got there practically, that there is, imagine being that asleep to your power. Mm -hmm. Imagine being that asleep to all the wisdom that is constantly dropping down as nectar waiting for us. Imagine being that tone deaf to the wisdom of your ancestors, to the wisdom of the earth, to the fact that there are these systems in place in this world that are keeping other people from being able to safely rest. Mm-hmm. That I, chills again. I know, that's so <laughs> beautiful. And if you think about it, because for me, immediately what came to mind was what, there's a place I used to live where I went back to, and there was a massive tree there. And I was like, who put this tree here? <laughs> Clearly it's been there for 50 years. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I've never seen this tree. And if you can't see the tree, how are you going to see the wisdom of your ancestors, which is far more subtle? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but I, um, I find your, the practice and after reading your book, especially, um, I can see how it would be very attractive for people who have have a history of trauma, whether it's a uh, collective trauma that they experience or their own personal trauma. And um, I was wondering, because in our, in our practice, we, especially when we do deeper meditations or we do rounding, which is um, kind of a, what we do on retreats, which is uh, multiple meditations a day with asana, there's an unstressing that happens. There's a releasing of that trauma and a releasing of the sanskara and releasing of the stress. And I was wondering about Yoga Nidra with this, the, that process, how, how um, because it seems like such a feminine, such a gentle, loving practice. Um, if, if there is heavy unstressing that you see or um, how, how it works for, you, for this practice. Yeah, it, it, it varies because, you know, in this practice, we're moving into these states where we can receive visions and hallucinations in the hypnagogic and hypnopompic states and memories can come forward, um, things that you were previously unaware of. Um, so for me, because I'm not a psychotherapist, I really make sure that we have resources for people. Um, you know, in every training, we always have three to four psychotherapists that are actually trained in yoga nidra. So that if there's something that comes forward that needs to be processed in more than just the self-inquiry writing um, practices, that there's space for that. Um, because these practices go deep and, and a lot of times they go beyond just this lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to be responsible, um, for, at least for us uh, when we, we do our teacher trainings, is to really be responsible because we're working with people over a period of, of months. You know, the, the mm -hmm. teacher training is... Um, a six to seven month program. And that's one of the reasons why we don't do it. Um, and not to say that there's anything wrong with how anybody else might be doing their teacher training, mm -hmm. but we don't do it in a short amount of time. So it's not like a 10 day teacher training or a weekend teacher right. training. We are asking people to receive the practices and then to practice them for a month before we go 
the level deeper mm -hmm. so that we're slowly kind of peeling things away and allowing you to kind of um, see what's there, make sense of it for yourself, process it. And before you go on mm -hmm. to the next, um, to the next layer. Uh, and that's how I like to teach because I think slow um, makes it more um, resonant. It's something that you remember. It's something that's embodied. It's that kind of wisdom that you know you have in your cells because you've been doing it. And you also know the power of it because you see the transformation. Mm -hmm. You know that it's more than just, wow, I feel like I, I, you know, slept for five hours, but I've only been in yoga nidra for 35 minutes mm -hmm. or wow, I had a really amazing experience that feels mystical like as a one-off that actually when you're doing it consistently, that cumulative practice is truly life-changing um, from what I have experienced myself and what I've seen in people that I've um, worked with closely. It integrates very, it's not, that's what I figured when I was reading it. It seems like it integrates as you're doing it because of the pace. Mm -hmm. And something that I, you know, as Kristen was saying, it integrates and there's a refinement of the senses and something that you talk about is how, you know, nature is our teacher. And, uh -huh. you know, it's, it's sending us little signs all the time. And the question is not how many signs, it's how aware are you? And so, mm -hmm. and so I would love for you to comment on that. And also I, I am, I loved because there, there's a rise in, in the feminine, which me and Kristen have talked about before on, on other episodes, but I love how, uh, Yoga Nidra is referred to a goddess as a goddess. And so I would love for you to, to also comment on that. Hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> those are two big questions. I know, no, no. So I'm going to, I'm going to answer the yoga nidra goddess question first, and then you can remind me of the first question, Perfect. right? You know, I had been practicing for a pretty long time, this practice of deep relaxation, yoga nidra, before I ever even heard that there was a goddess yoga nidra. I had also been practicing in the same tradition um, for a while before I actually realized, and this is, this is literally an example of being asleep. I had read the book, Living with the Himalayan Masters by Swami Rama, where there's about six or seven pages where he talks about how he was introduced to the practice of yoga nidra through his teacher Mataji, who ha he had been uh, in Kamakya and he had heard rumors that there was this woman who was almost a hundred years old who never slept. And so he started spying on her and he would see her go into the Kamakya temple and she had, her eyes were like full of Shakti, but she was like a serious crone and she was, you know, bones. <laughs> And at some point she found out, she saw him there and she kind of shooed him away. And then eventually after a couple of, of weeks uh, or so, he convinced her to let him be uh, her student. 
And she said to him, well, have you ever heard of the practice of yogic sleep? And he said, no. And essentially what she taught him was about the symbol Om and how Om is the representation of all of the states of consciousness, waking, sleeping, waking, dreaming, sleeping, and Turiya, and how that related to Yoga Nidra and what Yoga Nidra was. And so when we think about this idea that, first of all, I read that and didn't read it because it didn't retain until later when someone pointed it out to me again. And then also to be reading the Devi Mahatma and to be chanting these chants and not putting together that yoga nidra that they were speaking of was not yoga nidra, a technique, but yoga nidra, the divine feminine. That it feels like sometimes when we learn these practices from male teachers who have learned them from male teachers, some of the information about the feminine may get lost. Not that it's being suppressed on purpose, maybe sometimes it is, but it gets lost. It gets lost in translation. And so when you think about this practice of yoga nidra, that I think the first number of teachers that I ever practiced yoga nidra with, it was basically you practice with no blanket underneath your head, with no support underneath your knees, just on a simple mat, right? Um, there, that's a, to me was a very masculine way to practice because it also felt like I have to power through this practice. Mm -hmm. I have to deny my desire for comfort and support in the way that the, the literal earth, which is who is holding me is literally the great mother. She is going to hold and cradle me. She actually rises up to hold me when I breathe in. That's a support. That's the kind of support that we need. So this, you know, idea that the feminine is rising, um, she's always been here. She hasn't gone anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I really believe that it's more of our um, eyes that are being cleansed, that there is the veil that is being lifted away from our eyes because we have decided to devote ourselves more and more to practice. And so we're seeing, we're seeing it and we're calling her name. And as we call her name and we see her in all her forms, whether it's the earth, the moon, whatever, the clouds, <laughs> we, as we go into our gardens, as we, you know, everything that happened during the pandemic and not that we're not still in a pandemic because we are very much in a pandemic, but at the beginning of the pandemic, when everything was locked down, some of the things that people were running to for support was nature, mm -hmm. was gardening, right? All of these things that we never really had time to do before because we were so busy looking out here that all of a sudden when we thought about what we wanted, really wanted to do because we, some of us had time, we wanted to connect with nature. We wanted to connect with mother. Just processing everything. <laughs> 
I was just thinking, That's what so a beautiful one. episode. <laughs> <laughs> we can do part two, three, four. <laughs> if crazy, uh, we'll have a. <laughs> now remind me of your other question so that we yeah. can. Uh, you kind of uh, touched on it, but it was about, let me find, because I have a, a, a document with all the questions, about nature as our teacher and how we come to yeah. realize that. Yeah, so that so that was it. You got a two for one there. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so beautiful. I'm I'm seriously, yeah, I feel like I'm on another plane. Um I wanted to ask you or just mention you there's a beautiful phrase that I underlined about six times in your book, and it said by practicing the sleep of the yoginis, you can radically awaken to the magic and knowledge about that the universe holds while most of the world is sleeping. This type of wakefulness is more important than ever if we truly want to be part of a change that creates a more beautiful and just world for everyone. And I just, yeah, I've, I have stars and arrows mm. and everything on that because I think one of the things about all these practices that is shifting is this idea that these are self-help practices mm. and shifting out of this idea of the self when we think about the self, the, what the practices teach us is that the self is everyone and mm -hmm. everything. And so that these practices are what we need to address so many of the things in this world that we wish to change. Yeah. There's not much more I can add to what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, um, it go, it really goes back to driving and getting to a destination without realizing how you got there by reading a book and missing a whole complete passage that had wisdom that was waiting for me. That when we walk through life asleep, because we're not seeing these practices help to open our eyes. They hope help us to be able to see clearly. They help us to know who we really are. And so they, it all, they also help us because of, practices like self-inquiry to dismantle these negative thought constructs that are not helpful, that do not help us to thrive and that are in fact a lie. Mm -hmm. And once you know how to do that on a personal level, once you know how to dismantle your own negative thought constructs, your own mistaken beliefs, your own memories that might not even be correct, and you start to know and be able to see the truth of who you are, you can begin to dismantle anything. But you have to, you have to do that work yourself is my belief. Mm -hmm. You have to know how to do that work yourself, which is why studying the yoga sutras, studying the Bhagavad Gita, practicing yoga nidra, practicing meditation, practicing self-inquiry. These are all things that, we can do in little bite-sized pieces as we go through our day. You know, it's not like you have to go sit in an ashram for four months <laughs> to get this. You can just devote yourself to being free. And then you'll know how that is interconnected with everything else. I've, your book has so many beautiful illustrations and poems and I just keep getting this visual, but it's in your illustration style of someone 
where these negative constructs, the ancestral stress is just like lifting off of them. Mm. And the idea that we don't even know they're there, that we've, that we've incorporated these things as part of ourself. And so because they're so close to our identity of self, we don't even know they're there until it, we get to experiences, experience the practice. And then you can dismantle it once you can see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the process of realizing that it's even there, you know, is so humbling. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> You've carried There's... so much for so long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we all are. We all are. I really believe that it's part of our human experience that we're all here to see that and to be able to use the tools that we can acquire or have been given or that we just figure out on our own to be able to become free. But we have to be willing to to look. (laughs) Just... This is so beautiful. Tracy, thank you so much. We are humbled by you and your teaching and your presence. And mm. we um, we don't have much to say <laughs> other than thank you. Thank you so much. Um, th- thank you. Thank you both. Thank you both for your work and all the energy that you're putting into this podcast and your teaching and training of teachers. Um it's really beautiful and I'm honored to be here. So thank you so much. Thank you. And everybody read Tracy's book. Yes. Get into read it rest. everything that she's doing. She's truly amazing. She's a force thank you, of Izzy. nature. <laughs> she's I appreciate you. <laughs> we is. all are. We yes. all are. We just have to wake up to the fact that we are. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you. And, um, Yes, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.